everyone, I'm Riyad Alkyol and this is Dignified Resilience, a podcast on fresh narratives on confronting despair, alleviating distress, and forging ahead. In this podcast, we hear from people around the globe at all stages of life and variety of industries and learn how to channel dignified resilience to survive, feed the soul to heal, and connect with others through inspiring compassionate actions and behavior. At the same time, I aim to grow a global conversation that seeks to better acknowledge different sociocultural perspectives on meaningfully weathering life's adversities and achieving well-being. Here is a noble and humane invitation for surpassing our old selves by learning about and from other people's moving forces and limitations for successfully overcoming affliction and ache. Remember, we have different lives, distinct pathways, cultures, and contexts, but we can find common ground in supporting dignified resilience anywhere. So let's go then. So welcome to the second part of today's episode on Sarajevo Haggadah. Uh, we're joined now by Dr. Hikmet Karcic, who is a genocide scholar based in Sarajevo in Bosnia and Herzegovina. He is a researcher at the Institute for Islamic Tradition of Bosniaks. He's a senior fellow with the Center for Global Policy in DC. He was the 2017 Auschwitz Institute for Peace and Reconciliation um, Keene State College Global Fellow. And as well, he is the author of the annual Islamophobia, European Islamophobia Report for uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina. Um, his research is focused on genocide and Holocaust studies, Islamophobia, memory studies, and extremism. And most recently, he published a book, a biography of Dervish Korkut, the man whom we mentioned in the first part of the podcast and who saved the Sarajevo Haggadah in World War II. Hi, Hikmet, and first, uh, welcome to Dignified Resilience. How are you today? Good. Thanks for the invite. Sure, absolutely. It's my pleasure. Before we proceed, let me give you some background to the timing. I, I planned to record this episode uh, a couple of weeks ago as the local Catholic Cardinal in Sarajevo in Bosnia and Herzegovina served a mass for Bleiburg victims executed by the Yugoslav partisans at the end of the World War II. Most of those killed were pro-Nazi militants executed by the Yugoslavian communist regime. In April and May of uh, 1945, uh, members of pro-Nazi militias from various parts of Yugoslavia fled towards Austria with their family members. They were there, they were to surrender to British forces at Bleiburg, but the British army extradited them to communist forces, and many of the prisoners were executed without trial. So a large event to commemorate the victims is now annually held in Bleiburg. Uh, the Bleiburg rally this year has been canceled due to the coronavirus pandemic. Usually, or rather in the past, the visitors were displaying the Nazi symbols and those of Ustasha movement, which killed Jews, Serb, Roma, um, people and others during World War II in the independent state of Croatia. So that decision to hold mass in Sarajevo this year as one of the two replacement events um, in the first place prompted an avalanche of criticism in Bosnia and Herzegovina, including a condemnation from the Israeli and the US embassies. It was condemned by Bosnia's uh, Serbian Orthodox Church, the Jewish and Muslim communities and several anti-fascist organizations. The World Jewish Congress condemned the plans. It said that for the past 24 years, the Bleiburg Remembrance events have been 
quote, used to glorify individuals who supported or were actively involved in the activities of a regime which had executed hundreds of thousands of innocent men, women, and children only because of their ethnic or religious identity. Finally, the mass was held in Sarajevo. 20 people attended the service um, in the Sarajevo Cathedral. In the opposition of the event, thousands of protesters with masks on their faces due to the pandemic marched through Sarajevo. They thought and they found that it was dangerous to, um, that this was a dangerous attempt to rehabilitate the Nazi collaborators, referring to Croatia's Ustasha's militias, um, because in the closing months of World War II, the Ustasha militia implemented a brutal terror campaign in Sarajevo um, and the Croatian forces under the Nazi allied Ustasha regime oversaw the Holocaust in Sarajevo. So referring to the anti-fascist protest, Jakob Finzi of the local Jewish community said that Bosnia and especially Sarajevo have always been anti-fascist, uh, that, that Sarajevo has been anti-fascist town, both between 1941, as he said, and 45, and again, between 92 and 95, we have always been victims of fascism, of different types of Nazis. That is why the average person is strongly opposing this, in the words of Jakob Finzi of the local Jewish community. So it was this anti-fascist heritage of the city which has inspired me, and actually it brings me back to the beginning, or rather the focus of this episode, which is the Sarajevo Haggadah as a symbol, not only of long Jewish pres presence in Sarajevo, and one of the, as one of the many parts of a city's multicultural heritage, but also, also of course, it is, um, Sarajevo Haggadah is a ritual text of Jewish identity. It's a priceless work of art, and um, it's an incredible source of diverse history. So can you please, let's dive in. Can you describe us briefly Tevish Korkut's um, family background, his life until World War II, and also you've done extensive uh, archive, archival research. Let's get a feeling a little bit about this man um, of extraordinary courage, but also let's understand the environment in which he both grew up and which kind of uh, led to his educational formation um, as well. So basically, the Korkuts are one of the most famous uh, uh, families in, in Bosnia, and um, Dervish's family, and his so his grandfather and father and so on, they were all they all originated from Travnik in central Bosnia, and uh, for almost 150 years they have been you know uh, religiously educated uh, scholars, and for the you know for generations uh, the Korkuts were the main muftis of Travnik. And uh, interestingly enough, Dervish uh, Korkut himself was the last mufti uh, in Travnik until that um, the muftiate uh, office was abolished in the 1930s. So basically, he had a large uh, family background, a large family tradition in uh, scholarly work, in, in, in specifically in religious uh, and oriental studies. And this can also be seen from his uh, brothers. You know, uh, Korkut's uh, brother is very famous, uh, Bessim Korkut, because he was one of the, he, his translation of the Quran was one of the most famous, and it's still being used today. Um, his other brother was a very famous journalist and politician, uh, Saad Korkut. So his entire family was, was a very renowned family 
from from central central Bosnia, which uh, uh, also also became part of the of the of the scholarly uh, establishment of Sarajevo, especially between the two world wars. So uh, the Korkuts, which I mentioned uh, in, in religious and public life in the interwar period in, in Yugoslavia, are mainly these three brothers. Uh, his father himself, uh, Korkut's father, was uh, also part of the Ulama Majlis, which was like the, the governing uh, body of the of the Islamic community in Bosnia. So Dervish had a really good educational and religious background um, his entire life. So he was educated and went uh, after finishing school and the first gymnasium here in Sarajevo. He went to Istanbul where he studied theology, came back um, to Sarajevo and continued living here. Um, in Sarajevo. So if we fast forward to Sarajevo in 1941, so we know the Nazi military rolled into Sarajevo as Bosnia became absorbed into the Nazi puppet state of Croatia. And there were rumors at the time that Hitler had a plan for a museum of an extinct race. Um, and the country was also to be cleansed of Jews. So where is Darvish Korkuts at the time? What is going on with Haggadah? So basically, uh, before the, the, the Second World War, before the Holocaust, uh, Korkut is working in the National Museum in, in Sarajevo. Between the, the end of the First World War and the beginning of the Second World War, Korkut had a variety of different uh, jobs which he did. Mainly, they were uh, uh, related to, to early uh, and, and, and uh, a bit to politics, a bit to scholarly work and, and uh, uh, in academic studies and things like that. Uh, and prior to, to the, the breakout of World War II, he was working as a, as a, as a chief librarian and, and the creator of the National Museum in Sarajevo. Mm -hmm. uh, so in 1940, when, when, when uh, in 1940, just like in, in the whole of Europe in Yugoslavia, there was a rise in anti-Semitism, mm -hmm. and uh, you know there, there was this out outbreak of, of anti-Jewish sentiment, of conspiracy theories, and things like that. And this slowly also became part of the narrative in Sarajevo. So uh, Korkut at that time, uh, since he had a very good connections, just like many other Bosnian states in the country, they had very good connections with, with the Jewish community. Uh, Korkut at that time wrote in 1940 an article. Uh, in 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 a in an edited volume in Belgrade, uh, it was his article was called "Anti-Semitism is Foreign to the Muslims of Bosnia," in which he, he laid out uh, the problem of the rising anti-Semitism in Bosnia at that time. So so publishing this in 1940 at that time, with with you know Belgrade being uh, exclusively anti-Semitic and and so on, uh, with the Svetkovic Maček government uh, in, in power, this was a very brave thing at the time to publish in Belgrade. Um, in 1941, when, when Yugoslavia was occupied by, by the Nazi Germans and when basically Yugoslavia was divided into two, two countries, into the independent state of Croatia and into, uh, you know, Medic's uh, puppet government, Korkut was working in the museum. He had a very good relationship with his uh, boss, with his director called Jozo Petrovic, who was a Boston Croat uh, and who had very good relations with the Italian government uh, at that time. Uh, so he basically, he wasn't touched by the Nazi Germany or by the Ustasha government because he had a very good relation with the Italians. 
So one day uh, in 1941, they heard uh, so one day during the Second World War, the, 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 they got information that, that the Nazi German uh, general was going to come to the, to the museum uh, to visit. So uh, when he came there, uh, he was doing a tour of the museum. He had the tour and then he said, okay, now the tour is over, can you give me the Haggadah? And mm -hmm. since Korkut predicted that this general was being asked for the Haggadah, since everybody was talking about the Haggadah between the two world wars and so on, it was quite famous. Uh, Korkut, right before the general came, he and uh, Jozef Petrovich, um, he actually told Jozef Petrovich, the director, uh, let's go and try and save the Haggadah. And, uh, and Petrovich, in, in, in the beginning, was hesitant, but then Korkut said, don't worry about, you know, I'll take care of this. Basically, Jozef Petrovich knew what Korkut was going to do, uh, but Korkut took the whole thing into his own hands. So he took the Haggadah from the safe in the basement, and uh, he hid it in his, in his, in his clothes. So when the general, general in the end asked for the Haggadah, um, Korkut basically said, uh, you know, this morning there were some German officers who came and uh, who took the Haggadah away. So the German general replied, uh, can you give me their names? And he said, well, you know, it's not my position to ask, to ask for a German officer's name. Uh, so this, this again, this whole narrative about the Haggadah is something which is part of the oral history. So there is, there is no written record of how this whole conversation went. This yeah. is something which has been generally accepted by, by, by people and which has been told for, for, for so many times. Uh, the Haggadah, we don't know what happened to the Haggadah later on. This is, again, part of the oral history. So there are several versions of what really happened. Um, in one case, uh, apparently Korkut, what, what we do know actually is that Korkut brought the Haggadah to his home that day. Right. This is something which has been confirmed by his wife, mm -hmm. passed away in 2013. So we do know that the Haggadah was brought back to his home in Sarajevo, in the old town. Mm -hmm. and then later on, apparently, Korkut gave the Haggadah to, uh, to a friend, to an imam, uh, who was either an imam in, in Mountain Vlasic, Bosnia, near Travnik, where uh, uh, Korkut was born, or in another case, it was on Mountain Treskavica, where uh, he also had a friend who was an imam. So we don't really know what happened who, who Korkut gave this to, because Korkut talked well, very little about both about so many things in his life. What we do know is that he brought this Haggadah home and that he gave it back to the museum several years later when the war ended. So what we do know is that Korkut took it out of the museum and he brought it back inside. What happened in between, we don't have those details. Right, and there's also that um, other theory uh, which Jakob Finci, who is the leader of the local Jewish community and believes um, it's a theory developed by the former head of the Library of the National Museum, Kemal Bakrishic, and that is that the Haggadah was actually, uh, that it spent the entire war in the museum, right? Hidden among hundreds of thousands of other books in the museum library. So there is that theory as well. And um, as you say, the, the exact de details of his smuggling uh, and preservation of Haggadah are unclear. But then we come to um, unfortunate part of his post-war fate. Uh, we, after the war, Dervish Korkut, who by this point we know is a proven anti-fascist, 
gets to the court uh, for allegedly cooperating with the fascists. And then he was sentenced to eight years in prison. So can you just tell us a little bit more about why this was um, a political trial um, and, and the circumstances of how and why it happened? Okay, so firstly, let me just say that Orkut's um, saving of the Haggadah was not the only thing he did during the Second World War. Most importantly, he saved uh, at least one Jewish life, uh, saving a Jewish teenager called Mira Papo, um, who basically, I mean, one day in, in, in during the Second World War, one of his friends uh, came across a, a Jewish girl who he knew from before and uh, who, who was uh, part of the, of the partisan movement, and then once their group was uh, destroyed by the Germans, she managed to survive, she came back to, to the city, she was sleeping in the park, and uh, a Korkut friend found her, took her to Korkut, and after a brief discussion for a few minutes, uh, Korkut took her, told her uh, that uh, from now on she, she is going to be known as Amira, and that uh, she is going to be represented as his wife, uh, distant cousin from Kosovo, from Jakovo, and that uh, she shouldn't talk to anybody in, in Bosnian language at all. So she was getting Muslim quotes and she lived in his family for several months until uh, Korkut and his friends managed to get illegal documents and send her to Southern Bosnia, to Herzegovina, which was under the Italian control. And from there, she was able to save herself and join the partisans again. So that, that's one case. And another case, uh, Korkut saved a number of manuscripts from the uh, Kayon family in Sarajevo. He's a very good friend, Vito, Vito Kayon, who's a very famous publisher uh, and a collectioner in Evo, and he knew that he was going to be sent to Yasnovac, to one of the death camps. So he came to Dervish and he gave him a, a huge box of Jewish manuscripts. Uh, they told him, this is for you in, in a manet, so for, for safekeeping. Korkut mm -hmm. uh, took those manuscripts and uh, he intentionally falsely registered them uh, in the in the museum as the Turkish uh, documents of family Kapitanovich. So basically, whenever somebody would be looking for these documents in a catalog, they, would, they wouldn't find any Jewish manuscripts, they would find Kapitanovich family um, Turkish documents. But he saved this as well. Uh, he also took part in, 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 in uh, protecting the Roma Muslim population in the Second World War. Uh, when, well, when very early on in 1941, the Roma population was targeted by the Ustasha, he and several other uh, people drafted a written response to the Ustasha government, stating that they shouldn't and they can't um, prosecute the Romas on uh, racial grounds. So he had a variety of, of activities which we know of, and I'm sure that there were many more which he did which are not registered anywhere else, um, which he's, he protected all kinds of endangered minorities there, including Muslim refugees from eastern Bosnia, being from Ishigat, Focha, and so on, from Kujak, who were refugees in Sarajevo. He organized together with, with other uh, uh, non-political Muslim elites in Sarajevo a huge humanitarian uh, campaign to, to you know, give them refuge. Um, after the Second World War, uh, and after the Second World War, the Communist government arrested Korkut in 1947 in cooperation with the fascists. Now, in order to understand why he was arrested, we need to know that Korkut was a person who always disagreed with the government. 
So throughout his whole entire life, he always said what he thought. He he always criticized uh, the government or, or or you know gave his opinion. Um, he didn't really care about the the, the uh, you know the remedies. Like Ideology of the moment, right? No, he he didn't care about it. He, he showed that in, in 1920s when he was working in Belgrade at the Ministry of, of Religious Affairs. Uh, at that time, the, the sub radical party led by Nikola Pashic, they kicked him out from from the ministry. Later on, he he criticized Ilustasha um, government and Second World War for trying to interfere in Muslim relations inside the Islamic community. I mean, they wanted to send him to Yasnovats. He went into hiding for the last few months of the war with his whole, whole entire family. And the order for him to, to go to Zagreb came directly from Ante Pavlic, from the leader. So you can see a very, very, uh, this really high level uh, interest in getting rid of or because his act activities, this was some sort of non-violent resistance, uh, um, giving all, all, to, to, to all ideas that he was against. So after the Second World War, uh, of course, the communist government came. He was supportive of the partisans, uh, definitely. But after the, second, after the, the, the communist government was set up, uh, he didn't agree with certain things the, 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 the communist government did. Mainly, this was interference in, in, in you know, religious affairs of the Islamic community. Most importantly, he did not agree with the attempt to destroy the old town in Sarajevo, Ashashia, because there were many plans of communists to build a new, bit, bigger, better, modern Sarajevo. Mm -hmm. And he told, he, he multiple times told, and this is what his wife actually said, said that, that um, he was telling his, his brothers at that time that, uh, you know, these people have no idea about cultural heritage, you know. Mm -hmm. And his brother, Besson, was telling him to be much more wise, not to, not to, yeah, wise not to talk too much against the government and so on. He, he unfortunately, did not, did not listen. He um, raised his opinion against it and so on. And uh, one of his biggest, most fatal mistakes uh, was uh, meeting up with the British consul in Sarajevo, in Sarajevo at the time. And he asked the British consul for uh, British interference in Yugoslavia in order to um, provide international protection for Muslims in Yugoslavia, something similar to the Saint-Germain uh, Minority Treaty from, from 1919, which was protection of Muslim rights um, in, in the first Yugoslavia after the First World War. So his meeting with the British consul was basically um, the, 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 the final decision by the communists to get rid of him. The easiest way you could get rid of somebody in that time, two years after the Second World War, was just to, um, you know, accuse them of cooperating with the Nazis. Mm -hmm. That's what they did. Um, they accused him and several other uh, high-ranking Russian intellectuals for cooperation with the Nazis, for a variety of different different things. But they were, they were all individually uh, sentenced for their own own individual crimes. Um, I, I think the biggest the biggest uh, uh, work was hardest hit due to the fact that at the time he had um, three little children, uh, two little, little children at the time. So his whole entire property was confiscated uh, from Sarajevo. He, his wife at the time, his two kids had to leave Sarajevo and go to live with her family in, in Kosovo. At the time, his youngest daughter dies uh, from, from a disease in Kosovo. Comes out after eight years uh, from, from a hard labor prison uh, in Zenzai in Foch, Um And 
uh, I, I got the archives from, from the prison, and even in the prison, uh, he did not change his ideas. And and then you know, the prison um, uh, director basically wrote that. Uh, he was very lazy, right? I read in your the, books. They accused him of being lazy, but at the time he was he was a you know he was an elder man at the time, mm-hmm. at all. And uh, but they accused him of still talking to certain political op- opponents and dissidents in the prison, including Jozo Petrovich, the yeah. first director. So the two people who were most important in saving the Haggadah were both sent to, to, to prison for cooperation with the, with the enemy. Um, he comes out from from from, uh, from prison in, in, in the 1950s and gets a job again at a new museum, the Sarajevo uh, City Museum. And that's where he continues working, even though he already has, you know, in, uh, uh, enough years of, of work and, and age to go into retirement. They con- he continues to work basically, and he works until 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 his last days. Um, and he died in, in 1969. So basically, he has a really fascinating life. And uh, wasn't for Ira Papo, uh, who survived the Second World War, who went to Israel to live. That's and fascinating. In 1994, she writes a letter to Yad Vashem uh, about the whole entire story. If it wasn't for Ira Papo writing the letter. Believe me, it would be really hard to 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 prove most of these things because you know I can just imagine how many other things Orkut and many other Orkuts in in Sarajevo at that time um, did. Um, and Papo actually also wrote that letter because she felt guilty for not yeah. being able to participate at the trial of Darvish Korkut. So it's kind of a a good karma that came back at least to Darvish Korkut's. Uh, daughter Lamia, which uh, who actually in 1999, thanks to that document from Yad Vashem, was able to get uh, her family out of the refugee camp uh, from Macedonia after they escaped uh, Kosovo, and then they went to Israel and then to to Canada. So um, it just it was just getting more fascinating the more I read. But it, there is that uh, legacy of Dervish Korkut that remain kind of consistent with uh, his appreciation for not just interfaith harmony, but for cultural heritage and protection of minorities, as you touched upon as well. So, um, so then what happened to not forget Sarajevo Haggadah, which is kind of the, 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 the main point of the story as well. What happened with the Haggadah during the last war, Hikmet, between 92 and 95? It was saved again, right? Yeah. So basically, I mean, uh, just to, uh, I just want to set the record straight. After the Second World War, nobody, nobody mentioned Korkut saving the Haggadah, at least officially. So people were talking about it, but in, 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 in the history of the museum and, and written documents, uh, Korkut was the enemy of the state. He was a collaborator. He was accused as a collaborator. So the whole narrative about the, about the Haggadah changed. So if they were talked about it officially, they would say employees of the museum saved the Haggadah. Right up to, to the war in, in 1990s. So in 1982, the National Museum was uh, a few hundred meters away from the uh, Serbian army occupied part of Sarajevo called Grbovica, which was right across the Mijeska River. And from there, they were bombarding the whole entire town, of course, because mm-hmm. the, whole, the whole city was under siege. Mm-hmm. The museum as well was being bombarded, uh, and you know all of these uh, cultural, um, you know, uh, institutions being burned down intentionally, such as the Oriental Institute, uh, the National Library, and so on. So basically, the National Museum was also endangered by the Bosnian Serb Army, 
And uh, at that time, a couple of people under the uh, leadership of uh, a Bosnian historian called Enver Imamovic, they, they entered the museum and they uh, broke the safe and they took out the Hagada and took it to the central bank, which had a huge, really, you know, um, um, a good thing, vault, yeah, where they kept the Hagada during the whole entire war. Now, since nobody, of course, the Hagada is like most, you know, it's actually the most valuable treasure of Sarajevo. And uh, nobody knew what happened with it. They, they never publicly uh, said that they took it out from the, from the museum, that they sent it to, to the central bank and so on. Um, of course, due to, to the fact that you had many people who you know, would love to, to take it from there and sell it on the black market and so on. Since at that time in Sarajevo, you had a bunch of different, you know, um, both local and international criminal gangs, including members of, of, the, of the United Nations here who were very active in the black market. So it was very, uh, you know, plus members of different secret services and so on. It was very possible for them to take it out from Sarajevo. Um, so during the war in 1994, um, the, the, the Serbian, actually one Serbian, uh, Journalist manages to get a story in, in American in American newspaper uh, saying that the the Bosnian government sold the Haggadah to the Iranians for military weapons for the Bosnian army. I think this was published in, in a major uh, American newspaper, uh, you know. And of course, this this created a black backlash against the Bosnian government. Uh, so in 1995, uh, the Bosnian government decided to pass over to take out the Haggadah and show it in front of. Uh, you know, CNN, BBC, and all other different major networks. Um, and uh, there's a very good documentary made, made about this whole, this whole uh, wartime saving of, of, of the Haggadah. Yes, I saw, I saw it. With, uh, it's, it's, it's beautifully done. Um, I recommend everybody. It's available on YouTube, and it's 32 minutes long, but it's beautifully done, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that, that's, that's the story of the, of the Haggadah during, during the war. The last war. And today the Haggadah is in Sarajevo and it's in the National Museum, right? Yes. Right. Um, and, uh, it's available two, two, two times a week to go and to visit it. So it's not available every day. Mm -hmm. And as we said in the first part of the podcast, it is part of the, both the Bosnia's National uh, Heritage and UNESCO's World uh, Register. So I do want now, Hikmet, to ask you, considering your um, expertise as well, a little bit about. Uh, the Jewish experience in Bosnia and Herzegovina during their different epochs of, of the country's history. Um, Jakub Finci, who is the leader of the local Bosnian uh, Jewish community, said the fact that anti-Semitism is not expressed in Bosnia and Herzegovina is a rarity for 21st century Europe because we see that anti-Semitism and right-wing currents and political parties are slowly taking over and returning to uh, where they have not been for a long time, uh, as he said. So tell us a little bit more about um, the Jewish experience in, in Bosnia. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? So, so basically, the first Jews who came to Bosnia, uh, at the time, Ottoman Bosnia, were the Sephardic Jews who were kicked out together with the Muslims. Reconquista of Spain. Uh, they came to the Ottoman lands, uh, most notably to, to Thessaloniki and to, to uh, Sarajevo. So the Ottoman uh, Sultan at the time decided to, you know, uh, fight um, an opportunity for the Jewish, uh, for the Jews to come in to settle the Empire. 
but that was the first time that the, the Sephardi Jews came to Sarajevo. And once they came to Sarajevo, they were given uh, by the local governor at the time and by the Gazi Hutcher Bakov, they, the endowment, they were given a, a strip of land in the old town to build their uh, synagogue, the first synagogue. And the synagogue was built by, by the by the Bakov of the Gazi Hutcher Bakov. Um, so um, basically the, the, the idea of um, Interfaith tolerance between between uh, uh, Muslims and Jews in, in in this part of of the of the country, but also in the whole entire uh, region, has much to do with the Ottoman Empire's presence in the end time. So we're talking about a period when when you had um, vast programs from of Jews in in Western Europe, in Russian Russian territories, and so on. At the time, you didn't have that in in Sarajevo and in the, the in, in most parts of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, so that's the reason why why it's such a long legacy of, and actually, uh, the Jewish, the, the Jews of Boston became part of everyday life. A period of time when uh, you have several different newspapers being published in Boston at that time. You know, we have really good, uh, amazing cooperation of people uh, in in major cities, Muslims and Jews alike. You know, living together, working together, cooperating, up businesses together, and so on and so forth. Actually, the first time. And, and um, the first time the Jewish population was was uh, totally destroyed and eliminated was during the Second World War. Mm -hmm. We did not have. This is what I really like to always stress about. There was there were no ghettos for Jews in Bosnia at that time. Yeah. Uh, there were no programs for Jews in Bosnia at all. So there were no ghettos. There were no programs, and uh, people were basically living together with each other. And that's one of the most. Um, uh, the best examples of, of the tolerance they were this is something which Korkut talks about in 1940 you know trying to remind the people at a time in the in the rise of anti-semitism that these are people who have been living with us all the entire you know centuries basically yeah I read uh, before you continue I read a very interesting paper um you uh, I can't remember you quoted uh, from John Rock um Sarajevo and the Sarajevo Sephardim. It was published, I think, in 2018. Uh, she um, she's from Humboldt University in Berlin, and she describes kind of uh, starting from the Ottoman Sarajevo, how uh, rabbis served as lawyers for Jews, and also that some uh, Sephardi Jews sometimes turned to Muslim Sharia courts at the time. That in 5081, a Jewish neighborhood in Sarajevo um, had its own synagogue, and in 16, 1630, the still existing old Jewish cemetery was probably established, according to her paper. Um, and absolutely, as you said, and she mentions, movement in and out of the Jewish neighborhoods was unrestricted. So um, it was not a ghetto, as you said, and they had their schools too, which was how they were able to preserve their Ladino language for quite a while, right? So, um, and then um, we, we know from papers like this one and from researchers that most Sephardim were merchants, uh, but many of them were, like you said, doctors, uh, pharmacists, they were very integrated in the public life. So then what um, you said, I mentioned it was in World War II, pretty much. Uh, was it 10% of Sarajevo from, uh, that was Jewish from, from what I um, have gathered? It was 10,000 people. And then um, during World War II, uh, more than 80% of Yugoslav Jews, Jews in Yugoslavia, um, 82,500 people were killed from 
genre rocks paper uh, that that I found out. So it was very high toll um, in that sense, right? Um, yeah, actually, you know, in in uh, so you have, at that time Yugoslavia is divided into two into two countries. You have Gidic, Serbia, which is under Nazi government uh, control, and on this on the other side you have this. Uh, uh, independent state of Croatia, which is a very autonomous area um, ruled, by, ruled by the by the Croatian family. Um, Serbia becomes the first country to proclaim itself Judean right. We have Jews um, right after Serbia. So there was not a single Jew left uh, in Serbia at that time. And this is something which Christopher Browning uh, wrote about um, his work on Holocaust in Serbia. Most of these Jews were killed on several execution points and camps, uh, but also sent off to Nazi Germany. In the state of Croatia, you had a much more brutal campaign in the sense that the Ustasha were much more brutal in some cases than the Nazis themselves, um, especially brutal to the, to the uh, Serbian victims uh, and to the Jewish and the Roma victims. Uh, the, the Jewish victims were firstly brought to Yasinovac, uh, then there was a filter or selection of sort, and they were sent off to Auschwitz for their uh, execution. So that's why the, the, the number of the mortality rate of, of the Jews uh, will be high in this. Uh, of, yeah. But at the same time, you get a lot of cases of Jews being saved by their neighbors, by their friends, and so on. And they were being always sent down south to towards uh, Italian controlled territories, which were much more, let's say, lenient toward, you know, you could. Easily pass through Italian uh, soldiers and artists and so on. Uh, so much more easier. It's easier to hide and so on. And in the end, most of these uh, Yugoslav Jews ended in uh, in these areas or in Albania. Uh, yeah. So, so, so that's that's one of the most important things. Albania is one of the rare countries in, in Europe which had a larger Jewish population after the war than before the war. Yeah. More people came right there. And since at that time Kosovo was part of, of uh, Albania, it was much more easier to go through, you know, Bosnia, Sanjak, South Serbia to get over to Kosovo, and from there down towards, uh, you know, Tirana and whatever, towards towards different parts of parts of Albania. So it was a much more complex uh, case, and it's, it's quite difficult to to explain all these you know, um, parts in such a short short time, but. Uh, definitely, there there were. Um, it's it's a very sad story of of how um, the the Jewish population of Yugoslavia and then of Bosnia how it eliminated in the Second World War. But also, there are many positive aspects of how neighbors, uh, their friends, colleagues, family, unknown peoples like you know Korkopping, Irapapo, and you have so many other cases of families who, uh, unfortunately. Quite late did we find out about these cases. You know, like got a family like the Corcoran family, like um, many others. Um, some of them, even to this day, are getting recognitions by you know as righteous among nations. Corcoran uh, got it. Corcoran got it uh, in nineteen eighty four, so you know, almost years after he died. Uh, and thanks to Mira Papo's letter at Bachem, so you had many cases of people who uh, you know. Helped out, uh, saved, saved family members. But later on, could not talk about it, or you know, did not want to talk about it, or you know, basically were killed in other cases during allied bombardments or massacres, and so on. 
There's so much to 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 unpack here, like you say. I mean, um, Albania, as you said, was the only, from what I read, European nation to emerge from the Holocaust with a larger Jewish population. I think it's interesting uh, to at least mention another unique aspect of this Albanian code of law was Besa, right, which meant uh, protecting one's guests. So when Albanians who follow this Besa uh, felt what they felt was they were hosting Jews, I mean, they were willing to do anything from from my research, including risking their own lives to protect them. So um, that rescue and survival of approximately 2000 Jews by Albanians has for decades, um, as you mentioned, remained unknown. And uh, you're probably aware in similar light, Eli Taubat, who um, wanted and had different initiatives to make sure that um, these efforts are kind of uh, known. He began by trying to document the stories of people who had already been recognized by Yad Vashem, uh, the Holocaust Memorial Organization known in Israel as Righteous Among the Nation for their help. But then he was trying to track down the relatives uh, and those who could offer photographs and stories precisely to keep the new documentation. And in 2007, now I don't know what's going on with that project right now, he had made that nationwide appeal to uh, find um, hundred more cases of people uh, who, who had kind of saved each other. So as you mentioned, there was really this long um, tradition of, of preserving um, each other um, as beyond religion or ethnicity or nationality. In that light, and I'm sure you participated in that conference last November, um, in, in, in November 2019, Bosnia's Jews and Muslims celebrated and marked the bicentenary of the rescue. Uh, it was the Purim of Sarajevo, right? And there was a big uh, international conference uh, in Sarajevo at the time because um, in 1819, the governor of Bosnia, just to tell shortly our listeners, um, that was under the Ottoman rule at the time, Rujdi Pasha uh, detained and threatened to kill several Jews in case the Jewish community refused to pay a large ransom. But it was uh, thanks to the prominent people of Sarajevo that um, a dozen uh, Jews were saved, right? And so, so, so then um, in November again, there even the Hussein Effendi Kavazovic, who is the leader of uh, official Islamic community, uh, was present at the conference and he stated, Amid the ever-rising evil of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, we are renewing our pledge that we will remain good neighbors who will watch over each other as we did in the past. So that's what that what leads me back to that question I asked you two minutes ago. Considering the political conjuncture, and you are um, very you're an expert on far right in Europe and everything that's been going on uh, as well. Why isn't it even more important to keep remembering these things to put Darvish Korkut's place uh, back in our history, back to where it belongs, and, and to keep kind of talking about these stories um, in, in this moment of time and history? Well, firstly, the, the rise of the, of the far right in Europe and throughout the world uh, is in line with the, with the rise of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia at the same time. So these two things go together. Um, the second thing is that uh, cases such as the Boston Genocide, for example, are an inspiration for right-wing movements throughout the world, such as that, as in the case of, you know, Breivik, which we saw, 
uh, several years ago and now in, in Christchurch in New Zealand and so on. So um, my argument is that why don't we make stories such as uh, Derish Kirkwood an inspiration for people to fight against, right? So, so you know, we have so many positive stories that we can we can tell, but which haven't been told. Um, you know, uh, I, I, my, my next project I hope will be on. on the Mufti of Tuzla, Kurt, uh, who saved uh, uh, several thousand Serbs in the Second World War, um, you know, defying the Bustasha uh, regime at the time in Tuzla. So we have so many positive aspects of people who are virtually unknown to, to, to in, in, in Western um, or English language uh, literature, academia, and so on and so forth. Um, and, and definitely these stories can be... Uh, Used as, as a contra narrative to the, to the ongoing right now rising narrative of far right movements throughout the world. So using the story of how, um, and basically, this, this is the narrative which Karadzic and, and Mladic used in the 1990s, saying that minorities, people of different faith, religion, ethnic background can't live together. Um, these are stories which show that people can live together. Small group of uh, fascists. Uh, who, who are trying to divide up and polarize the societies. So, uh, you know, th there are so many Korkuts out there who are um, maybe not to that extent uh, uh, stubborn as, as Dervish was, but, but who are defying, um, you know, uh, uh, parties who are um, uh, targeting minorities who are, who are trying to um, kill and murder people just based on the fact that they have a different name and religion. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and, and, and that is why I'm, I chose to make this episode on Sarajevo Haggadah as kind of the center and the focus, but it's also about the themes related to it. It's about the people. So um, that said, um, Hikmet, um, is there anything that you want to uh, share before I take you to... Uh, I'm not gonna say more fun part of the podcast, but um, you, I really appreciate the the professionalism and that um, approach that you take in your academic work as well. And I'm very excited about the new one that you now uh, announced as well. Um, are you considering that you're also author of uh, Islamophobia Report and you do all sorts of stuff in, in Holocaust studies? Are you optimistic about what's happening politically in? Uh, Europe and, and the world uh, in terms of the rise of authoritarianism or can I dare to say rise of fascism or is it is it are we are we naive to mention the rise of fascism or return of fascism is it back what is your opinion on on that political conjuncture globally right now hopefully I think we're in a very bad place I mean that's that's which is the awful truth mm. um, but, but I think that uh, even with the rise of you know Orban and uh, all these uh, um, cases, we still have a critical mass is there, uh, which can point fingers and say that this is wrong. And uh, as long as we have that critical mass, uh, then, then, then there is definitely hope for a better future. Um, what is definitely here also, also shown is that uh, Europe itself uh, cannot deal with these with these uh, issues on, by its own on itself. So it definitely needs help. 
from come and to uh, preserve preserve the peace in, in, in Europe and especially in the Balkans in this part of the Balkans. Um, you know this this area has always been some sort of um, you know playground for different uh, empires and and uh, now uh, different ideologies and so on and so forth. So uh, we are always living in these interesting times throughout our, our whole life and. Uh, what we can definitely definitely see is that uh, the next couple of years will definitely be much more interesting for for us. I um, urge everybody and anybody who has interest in um, Holocaust studies in the Balkans and uh, really uh, Islamophobia or genocide studies to follow Dr. Hikmet Kartic. He's uh, present online as well. Um, thank you, Hikmet so much for your time. I do want now to uh, bring you to something that I called five sweet questions, uh, which is unrelated to your professional expertise, but which allows uh, our listeners to get to know you just a little bit more. Um, so here are the five questions for you. First one is, um, once the current global pandemic is over, um, and I don't know how, what's, I know what the situation in Bosnia is right now. <laughs> Uh, the borders are opening, the cases are rising like everywhere. But in general, once uh, it's over, is there something that you would not want to forget from this period? Uh, I have no idea, actually. I, I, uh, this pandemic came actually uh, as, as, a, you know, as a blessing because I've been able to do so much academic work at home. <laughs> so I'm going to definitely miss some parts of the pandemic. Uh, so time, right? You got more time to, to, to do more work. Yes. So, okay, next question. Which of your personality traits do you think has been the most useful? Like, not the best, but what do you think was the most useful part of your personality? I have no idea. Seriously. You see, it's so amazing that to ask these questions to, I guess. Look, I'm like, it allowed you to think, right? Um, yeah. I haven't thought about it, actually. Are you, what was it, are you disciplined or patient, impatient, determined, assertive, curious? What do you think about uh, your- No, I'm very impatient and I'm very determined. So, um, I'm a Capricorn in, 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 in the high school. So basically I just, you know, like to get things done. So I, I hate having some things not, not finished. Basically, so I just like to, and I want to uh, finish things which no one else has done. So that's actually how I came, came to do corporate. Nobody else is doing it. Everybody was talking about the story. And I decided, well, why, why shouldn't I write about this? So, and it became really good, actually. Very good decision to do so. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you see, I should have asked that at the beginning. What made you do this? Well, I mean, imagine, imagine uh, I, I had to go to like five different archives. You know, yeah. uh, to, and, you know, these are archives where people usually do not, are not a, very helpful in this case and uh, some some archives are gone that was most fascinating like i have records of documents in some archives which exist which are related to corporate you go there they don't they're not there anymore physically they're they're gone uh, because you know war post-war period people getting in and out of archives taking documents out taking them home bringing them back buying documents and things like that so it is really hard you know, to, to, to put this mosaic together. And plus, 
one more thing. When 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 Corpus was arrested, his whole whole entire library was taken away. His whole entire archive was taken away. To make things worse, all the things which he managed to save and to, to, to collect after he came out from prison was burned down by the Serbian army in Gretavica uh, in 1992. So I was I started off with nothing. You know, I contacted the family, they were very helpful, um, and, and, and we talked, but they really had nothing. Even the photographs were, were very rare, you know, so uh, you know, it was definitely a difficult uh, task to do. Something which, which, you know, since I'm quite determined, I really wanted to do it, because, I mean, if, if this was easy, somebody would have done it so far. I mean, 25 years ago, somebody would have done it, you know, just like other books were being written 25 years ago. But uh, since nobody did it, I, I figured that you know, it's definitely, it's probably very difficult to, to write it. And you know, in the end, it's not a large book, it's quite small. But I hope that uh, over time, we'll be able to gather more and more and more archival uh, resources and, and materials and then just expand the book further. Uh, before I get to the fourth question, and thank you for mentioning that, uh, how, where can people find the book? Can they buy it online? I'm sure there are a lot of, uh, people from the United States and around the world who would like to read it, and it's written in English as well. So, where is it available right now? Currently, it's available through the through the publishing house in Sarajevo called Altram on their website. We're going to try and put it on Amazon. Okay, great. So there it, there is a possibility of of getting it uh, through Altram. Yes. yes, definitely. Okay, great. Uh, okay, so uh, next question: When you have thirty minutes of free time. That you could control. How do you pass the free time when you're not working? Uh, I smoke hookah. Okay. okay. <laughs> so that in Sarajevo, there is a a whole street, from what I remember now, of new stores popping up. But you do it at home. Yeah, I, I'm I'm much more for the home environment. You know, I have my home. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. As, especially at the time of pandemic. Personally, I thought yeah. it was crazy that, to read that they're opening uh, the stores. But anyway. Um, Fourth question, what skill or craft would you like to master? I always wanted to uh, to play some sort of instrument. Mm -hmm. And we are, you know, as family, we are totally anti-talent for any sort of you know, music, so. But, but I do want to mention the Karchich family, this stays in the digital history. It is one of the most uh, renowned in terms of Dr. Pikri Karchich and who is, uh, Hikmet's father and uh, Harun Karcic and Hamza Karcic, very prolific intellectuals uh, of the contemporary Bosnia and Herzegovina, and I always learn from them uh, whatever I do. So um, I, I, I wanted that to be uh, on the record as well. Uh, last question, Hikmet Are any of your friends completely opposite to you, or are most of them similar to you? All of my friends are totally opposite to me. Totally. <laughs> That's so 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 interesting. Yeah, I, I get yeah. different responses of, of people. And how do you you appreciate the differences? How do you how does it work? Oh, it's quite good because you know they they mostly are interested in what I'm doing, but uh, I don't think they ever read any of my stuff. <laughs> so because I usually bore them, you know, talking about you know all of these different things, and it's quite funny. You know, hanging out. Anyway, you just the the culture in Sarajevo, the coffee culture, things like that. So you know, we drink like different coffees per day in Sarajevo and so on. And um, yeah, but most of my friends come from, from high school and from the faculty. Right. 
Okay, well, um, there you have it. Um, now you know where to get the book. Now you know whom you need to Google or when you need to learn. So again, uh, uh, thank you so much for joining us, Dignified Resilience, and for sharing uh, this expertise and for doing it like today. Because I think that by by producing this book, you um, in an official manner made your contribution towards putting Dervish Corpus place in our history uh, towards where it belongs. So um, that said, um, to everybody else, um, stay well, hold tight to those you love, and um, stay tuned for more conversations from people from all over the globe.